want to again welcome each and every one this morning. I'm going to begin our lesson looking at a verse in the book of Colossians, second chapter there in verse 8. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We know by looking around us in the world today that there are many different ideas that are put out there as far as what is correct, what is the correct way to understand the Bible. And it's important for us from time to time to analyze some of these teachings of men and compare them with what the Bible says to see what is truth, because we know that it is possible to know the truth. There is objective truth that has been revealed that God wants all of us to unite upon. And we can think about various passages that highlight that point. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 comes to mind, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples on that occasion, said that if they abide in his word, they would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. The title of our lesson this morning is Examining the Tulip. And you might be thinking, well, what do tulips have to do with the Bible, and why would we be concerned with studying tulips? And I think that you'll soon understand the reason for that title, as we're not thinking so much about the physical flower as we are about a certain doctrine. And as we examine this doctrine, I think you're going to see just how much it has permeated the religious world around us. So many different denominational groups have been influenced by this core teaching that originated many, many years ago. We're going to begin by talking a little about John Calvin, who is actually the originator of this particular teaching. John Calvin was a Frenchman. He lived from 1509 to 1564. And he was one of the principal leaders of the 16th century Reformation movement. You may have heard of that before, where people were rebelling and pushing back against some of the teachings, especially of the Catholic Church, trying to get back to a more biblical-based faith than many of the traditions of that movement, which, of course, continues today. And so John Calvin was a part of that effort. We're going to see that he didn't quite make it all the way back to the truth of the Scriptures, but uh, that was at least his motivation and the things that he taught. Uh, he's the author of The Christian Religion, a book that he wrote, which famously outlines the tulip, as it's been often referred to, these five basic tenets that he put forth as a correct understanding of the Scriptures, especially the New Testament and the Gospel. And so we're going to be analyzing those five points this morning. And I'm not going to go through them yet because then you'll have all the answers for your outline there. So you've got to pay attention. 
But before we get into those five points, I want us to first think for just a moment about a topic known as the sovereignty of God. Now, this was a teaching of Calvin, and some have put forth that this is more or less the soil or the foundation from which the tulip grew out of. And so it's important that we understand this foundational way of thinking that Calvin had and taught. Now, obviously, as we think about just in general the idea of the sovereignty of God, we know that that is a biblical idea, that God is indeed sovereign. And we could notice a couple scriptures just quickly to highlight that truth. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 6 there, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Similarly, in Psalm 33, verses 8 and 9 there, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. So truly there is no other like the Lord. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is all places at all times. But the sovereignty of God, as Calvin put forth, is a little different from the ideas that we have just noted there from these passages in the Psalms. Taking a quote from the writings of Calvin, he put it this way, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. He has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future, uh, future, or as that which would come to pass on such conditions. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death their number so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. And so that was taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1648. So these ideas are based upon what Calvin taught and understood as God's sovereignty. In other words, to kind of paraphrase what we'd read there, it's the idea that Everything that is going to happen, everything that has happened already, God has basically controlled all of that. And everybody who is going to be saved is saved because God already, well before they even lived, chose them for life. And likewise, those that are going to be eternally lost, as he understood it and as he felt, That was because God had already determined that. In other words, there was no real choice in the matter. As he said there at the last portion of that quote, uh, the number of saved and lost is so certain that it cannot be added to or changed in any capacity. 
So from that kind of foundational way of thinking, we find these five tenets of Calvinism sprang forth. Now, I want us to notice a couple passages here, just as we are still thinking about that foundational way that Calvin thought. Because it's important that we notice what the Bible has to say about some of those ideas. Psalm 5 and verse 4, notice it says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. So in other words, what is this telling us? It tells us that God is not the author of anything that is evil or sinful. He has nothing to do with that. In fact, we might say that sin and rebellion is, is an absence of God. When a person pushes God away, they naturally gravitate towards the things that are contrary to his nature. Just as we know that darkness is the absence of light. So how can we then say, as Calvin did, that God is behind uh, the lostness of the lost? That would be as to say that he is behind the wickedness that they would produce. In 1 John 1, verse 5, a similar idea here. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, it puts forth the idea here that we do indeed have a choice. Paul, as he wrote, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So Paul says we have the ability to determine who we're going to serve. We can serve those things that will lead to death, but we can also choose to lead ourselves unto righteousness through obedience to the Son of God, which is of course, the larger context there of Romans chapter 6. And finally, on that same point, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus here is speaking, and he says, Why do you call me Lord and not do the things which I say? He goes on and says, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing, is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream likewise beat vehemently, and immediately this house fell, and the ruin of that house was great, it says. So in other words, Jesus himself identified that people can choose, right? So that goes against this basic foundational way of thinking that, that Calvin had put forth. So we'll further explore these things as we look at uh, the tulip itself here. So the first tenet of the tulip, the T, what does that represent? Well, it represents the idea known as total hereditary depravity. And you might be thinking, what does that mean, right? Well, the idea of total hereditary depravity is that 
which you've probably heard uh, taught in different places or different people put forth in different terms, but it's the idea that we are basically born into sin. Uh, depravity, of course, is being depraved of certain things. In this case, we're talking about life or access to God. Hereditary is the idea that we inherit something. Certain traits that you have were inherited from your parents and grandparents and so forth, whether it's your eye color or your hair color, things of this nature. And total suggests that all are included. So everybody is basically born depraved of life, born as sinners is this idea. And as we understand that, you can begin to think about how many different denominational groups, like we'd said earlier, hold to that position even today. It's all based upon, again, this, this tulip that Calvin put forth. So what does the Bible say about that idea? Does the Bible support the idea that we're all born sinners, that we inherit the sins of ultimately Adam, our original ancestor? Well, let's notice a couple places here. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, first of all, notice that it says, The soul who sins shall die. And he goes on to say, The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So this begins to eliminate right away what total hereditary depravity teaches, doesn't it? Because we see here in this very short verse that the scriptures tell us we don't inherit guilt for anyone else's sins, whether it's our father or mother, whether it's family or anybody else for that matter. That we're all accountable for our own actions. In James chapter 1, we further notice here how sin comes about. It's not something, again, that we inherit but it's something that we choose. So verse 13 there of James 1, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So that kind of goes back to some of the thoughts we'd noticed a few moments ago as we were noticing that God has no association with evil, nor does he produce it. Verse 14 says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So James teaches us here that we all sin when we give in to temptation. Not because we're born with the guilt of what others have done incorrectly. But this is based upon individual choice, individual conscience. And, and so that, again, begins to shoot holes in the teaching that we are considering here. You notice that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, when he talked about the nature of one who would be a part of the kingdom of God, 
that he said that we have to become like little children. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, if children are born sinners, why would we want to be like children? You see how that is a uh, contradiction? Verse 2 there of Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The idea there that he's stressing is the idea of innocence. And the Bible repeatedly teaches us that children are indeed innocent. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, there as the Israelites are being addressed concerning their choice to not go in and take the land of promise that God had given them. You remember the ten spies came back with that negative report. They said, we can't do it. We might as well just go back to Egypt, right? They didn't trust God and they didn't follow God's commands. And so it's being explained to them here in this context that there's going to be a a punishment, a wandering in the wilderness that they're going to have to endure. And in verse 39, it says, Moreover, your little ones, your children, who you said would be victims. In other words, if they would go into the land that they remember some were saying that the children and their wives would be taken as slaves and so forth. So these who you said would be victims... Notice, who today have no knowledge of good and evil. They shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So it's very key there, noticing the way that these children are described. They have no knowledge yet of good and evil. And we can understand that just with a very small child. They they don't yet grasp the concept of right and wrong. They have to be taught and learn those things. And finally, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, kind of is a summarizing point for what we've noticed. There, Solomon writes and says, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So, contrary to what Calvin put forth there, we see that the Bible teaches otherwise. It teaches us that we don't inherit sin. We are not born into sin, but rather we all become partakers of sin as we mature to the point where we know right from wrong and we choose of our own will to give in to those temptations and do what is contrary to the will of God. God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. So that particular petal we see kind of falls off of the flower there as we Analyze it in connection with the scriptures. The U of TULIP stands for unconditional election. And this is the idea that those, kind of going back to that foundational soil, as we noticed earlier, those who are chosen for salvation are done are chosen unconditionally. In other words, there's nothing that they could do, right or wrong, to alter that election that they've received. Well, we've already noticed some scriptures, obviously, that kind of highlight the problem with that mentality, but let's further look at this, this idea of unconditional election. It kind of goes against the very 
basic commands that the apostles were given. You recall in Mark chapter 16 as one example, verses 15 and 16, we notice this quite often, especially as we're thinking about what a person must do to be saved because Jesus outlines that here. But notice he says in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, if Jesus understood this idea of unconditional election, if there was any truth behind that, what would be the purpose of him telling his apostles to go out and teach people the gospel? Wouldn't that have already been figured out according to this kind of teaching? Those who were elected for salvation were already elected unconditionally. So what need would there be for instruction? And why would he say that those who would be saved need to do certain things here, as he says, talking about belief and baptism into his name? Ephesians chapter 1, I want us to notice here because obviously a lot of what influenced Calvin to reach the conclusions that he did are some of the language that we find in the scriptures, such as the word predestined and foreordained. You'll see those words used, so it's important that we understand uh, the context in which that kind of language is used so we can understand it correctly. Notice in Ephesians 1, verse 3, beginning. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now notice it says in verse 4, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now you read that passage, and if you don't know anything else other than what Calvin put forth, you might say, well, yeah, I can see. I can see where he got that, right? It kind of sounds almost like what Calvin put forth, this idea that a God already has chosen certain people for adoption as sons. Uh, and he did so even before the foundation of the world. Uh, the key to understanding what is meant here is the phrase, in Christ. And if you notice, really throughout that whole first chapter of Ephesians, you'll see that phrase used over and over and over again in connection with every point that is being talked about. In other words, those who are chosen... Those who God selected, it's not that he went through a list of everybody who would ever live and said, well, I'm going to just, you know, pick this random sampling of people because well, I like his name or, uh, you know, some other arbitrary thing. But it all hinges on in him, in Christ. In other words, those who would make the conscious choice to be translated into Christ would be part of this number who God had in mind to save through his son from the very beginning, through the plan of salvation. We choose, 
whether or not we're a part of that pre-selected group. It all goes back to our choice. So the church, the plan of salvation, yes, was in the mind of God even before he created all things. But who becomes a part of the church, part of the kingdom? That's up to you and I, you see. Are we in Christ? Notice again in chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The idea of what God prepared beforehand is this ark of salvation, if you will. The ark of the Old Testament foreshadows the true ark, which is Jesus Christ, we might say the church, his body, his kingdom. And so he's prepared that avenue beforehand so that those of us that would choose to be translated into Christ could realize all of his goodness and love and be with him for all eternity. So it is based upon our choice. It is not just some arbitrary thing that God has done, regardless of our decision-making in this life. 1 Peter chapter 1 is another such passage where we find this kind of language is used, and here is more so focused on what Jesus did and uh, the sacrifice he made for all of humanity. Peter says in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And of Christ, it says, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So again, this speaks to what we had just highlighted a moment ago, this idea that the plan of salvation is what was foreordained, what was predestined in the mind of God, this plan he had from the very beginning, knowing that because we have the ability to choose, we would undoubtedly choose to eventually rebel against him. And we see it didn't really take all that long as you go back to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, another such place where we see this prophesied, letting us know that God had this plan in mind even before it was ultimately executed. Daniel 2, verse 44, as Daniel is talking about this vision that the king had had, where he saw this great statue, you recall, that was made up of different components, different layers. And he's explaining that in the days of those kings, the kings that made up the base layer of that statue, God would set up this kingdom that would never be destroyed. The kingdom should not be left to other people. It will break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms, these man-made kingdoms, and it will stand forever, was the interpretation of that dream. So what is the kingdom? Well, again, it's all wrapped into the same thing we've been talking about. You go to Luke chapter 9, verse 27, and what did Jesus say? As he spoke to those there present, he said, I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom 
of God. So this is before he died on the cross and was resurrected, of course. And then we notice in Colossians, now this is after Jesus had ascended back to heaven, after he'd made his sacrifice. Now we have the church established, which Jesus in Matthew 16 said that he would build. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, you recall, as he spoke to Peter. And so now what is spoken of as Christians are addressed here, it says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. So there you can see the prophecy and then the kind of immediate prophecy in the days of Christ before he was crucified. And then we see that post those events, as the church had been established, that it's spoken of that the kingdom now existed. So the conclusion naturally then is that the kingdom, the church, the body, these are all synonymous. These are all one and the same thing. This is what God had in mind to accomplish before the establishment of the known universe. So the scriptures decimate that petal as well, don't they? And that brings us to the L of tulip, limited atonement. So the previous point is more or less talking about the nature of those who are, according to Calvin, elected. It's unconditional. Uh, nothing that a person could say or do to change that election if God saw it fit for them to be a part of that number. But limited atonement is the idea that that would be a limited thing, that not everybody would be elected again. Atonement was only for certain ones. Well, what do the scriptures say about that? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, there the Hebrew writer says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for the select few that God predestined for salvation. Now, it doesn't say that, does it? It says for everyone. Notice that. He died for everyone. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins and not for ours only, notice John says, but also for the whole world. So as we begin to read some of the scriptures in the New Testament, it doesn't sound all that limited, does it? It's going to be limited based on those who choose to receive it, but not because of anything God has done to limit it. Salvation is available for all. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 says, The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. In other words, we've all committed sin. Those of us that are of the age where we, again, understand right from wrong, like we talked about earlier. He died for all, verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So just this very small sampling of verses here shows us that the idea of limited atonement likewise does not 
hold much water at all. The eye of tulip stands for irresistible grace. There is nothing you can do. If God has chosen you to be saved, uh, you cannot resist that. You cannot oppose it. You can go around and murder people and steal things and blaspheme and just basically do whatever you want because that grace is just so powerful that there is nothing you can do to alter what God has already selected. So we see that some of these things kind of overlap in a sense as we look at them. But notice in John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So here again, we see Jesus teaching the idea that people have a choice as to what they're going to do. If they're willing to listen, then they can be saved. Acts chapter 13, verse 46 is interesting, especially noticing the the wording of that particular point that we're noticing. Because here Paul and Barnabas, as they were trying to teach the Jews uh, there in that place, uh, they weren't getting anywhere. They just kept meeting with all this resistance. And the Jews, of course, were even to the point where they were trying to persecute them, harm them, take their lives, see them thrown into prison, all these kinds of things. So it says they grew bold and they said this, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But notice, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So here we see people who were resisting God's grace, weren't they? They were rejecting it outright. They were not receiving it. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen there, as he spoke to certain of the Jews who, again, were directly opposed to the message of the gospel that he was trying to teach them. As he addressed them, he said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Notice again the language. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So, again, we see that the Bible rejects this idea of irresistible grace. We can indeed resist what God is offering us. We can reject it. We can throw it aside. We can judge ourselves unworthy of eternal life. Again, borrow the language of the passage we noted there. And so the final tenet of Calvinism, the the P of the tulip, stands for the perseverance of, of the saints. Now, this is another of those ideas that you most commonly hear referred to in the sense of once saved, always saved. We hear that all around us in the world today. Once you are saved from your sins, there is nothing at all you can do to lose that salvation. Sometimes, of course, as you look at all these different tenets that Calvin put forth, you might find that this denomination over here maybe has kind of rejected some of them, but has grasped on to one or two or, or what have you. 
But nonetheless, people cling to these things even today and are misled by these ideas. Because the Bible teaches us that we certainly can fall from grace. Uh, We can receive God's grace. We can stand in His grace. Thinking about Romans chapter 5, the first five verses there. We can, through faith, stand in His grace. But then we can likewise fall from it if we choose to reject it once again and go back to our selfish ways. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, it says, If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, the Apostle Paul, notice his attitude. If there's anybody that we might think of as, you know, untouchable, we might think about one of the apostles, right? Well, certainly they can't fall from grace. But Paul said, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Notice, become disqualified. So Paul, as he wrote that, understood that he was qualified through Christ's blood. But he said, I can disqualify myself if I don't keep myself under control, if I don't discipline myself into subjection to the will of Christ. James chapter 5, verse 19, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders, notice that, from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that shows us when we wander from the truth, what's what's the consequence? Well, we've, we've wandered back into death, you see. We've become a sinner. It is not impossible. Finally, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 there. Peter says, If after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them, but it has happened. According to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And so, uh, we don't have any more petals left, do we? So what have we done this morning? We've kind of exposed this tulip to the light, haven't we? We've Presented the sun there, and, and what has been the result? It's, it's wilted, that flower. It has caused it to dry up and shrivel away. And that's the nature of truth. Jesus said in John chapter 17, as he prayed to his father, he identified the, the fact that God's word is truth. And truth is like a light. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 105, your word, he says, is a lamp. To my feet, it is a light to my path. Anybody can open up the pages of Scripture and honestly come to an understanding of truth. We don't have to go through some man. We don't have to go through some group of men or men and women to reach some kind of understanding of what is right and wrong. We can simply open it for ourselves as we've sought to do this morning. What does it say? And we've looked at what men have put forth as correct. 
And we've said, well, what does the Bible say about those things? And we can see the contrast, can't we? And so God's word truly illuminates our path. It shows us which way to walk, which way to go, what to put stock in and what to reject. And so I pray that our time together this morning has been beneficial for you. Hopefully you can recall these scriptures as perhaps you talk with people who maybe are still swayed by some of this. Or it's really pretty old teaching at this point, but nonetheless it, it permeates, like we said, many of the religious groups that exist today. And so it's important that we can expose those falsities using the truth of God's word. Second Timothy chapter 4, we'll close with this passage here, verses 3 and 4 there. It says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they'll be turned aside to fables. Many fall into that category today. We, of course, have to guard ourselves, make sure that we're not believing fables and not the truth. But as we come to that understanding, it's important that we use it to teach those who are lost. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have been caught up in some of these ideas of men that have perverted your way of understanding what you ought to be doing in life or cause you to do things maybe you recognize now are incorrect and you need to make a change. We would love to assist you in any way you might need this morning, whether it be prayers or if you've never obeyed the gospel, we have water prepared here that we can immerse you for the forgiveness of your sins into Jesus Christ. You can become a part of the church, the kingdom that we have studied about this morning. Be a part of that group that God had in mind that would be created through the sacrifice of his son, even from the very beginning. You can be a part of that number through your choice, through your decision to follow Christ this morning. We'd love to assist you in those things if that is your desire. And so whatever it might be, as we stand now and as we sing this song together, we just simply ask that you would make those wishes known by coming up to the front of the auditorium.